It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning's Daily Thunder message is uh, a weighty one uh, for me, and so just want to invite the Holy Spirit to lead me, but also those of you that will be hearing it. Uh, I just feel like this has the potential to be really pithy and powerful for us. So uh, let me lead us in a prayer for that. Father, I pray that you would guide every detail, every moment of this, that the words would be governed by you that come forth. And I pray that not just that I would be sharp spiritually, led of the Holy Spirit, but that those that hear this would also be. They would be able to apprehend and, and receive in a manner that is uh, akin to your kingdom, that is in agreement with your nature. Lord, uh, may we, as the body of Christ, navigate through these matters well, truly to your glory, honor, and praise. We love you. Amen. <clears throat> so, I've been going through a series called Life Lessons, and this is not one of them, even though I could have easily uh, crammed this in as a life lesson. Uh, this is something to do with the, the current events in Christianity that uh, have had a great weight upon many of us, uh, me uh, in particular. This has been a, a heavy issue for me to deal with, and that is uh, the matters of Joshua Harris as a key leader uh, in the church to not just turn on his platform uh, that he has stood on for so many years, but then to actually uh, leave his marriage and leave Christ. Uh, and that's it's difficult for us uh, on the outside looking in to say, what, what is going on there? And in and through this process, I know it has been a a gymnastic routine for my soul, and it's been very good, and I know that sounds strange, but it's been a very good process for me just to evaluate these things, because when that sort of pain, that shock comes in when someone very close and dear, I would call Josh a friend, uh, goes through something like this, it, it shakes us, and that shaking can actually lead to a breakdown and a decomposition of our spiritual life, or actually a strengthening. And for me, I'd say it's been a, a very beautiful process that has brought up certain things. Uh, for those of you that uh, saw that I released a blog, I think it was on Friday of this last week, and it's a multi-part blog, and so I've been processing through this, and it's interesting if I were to share with you the angle that I've been processing it through at, and that's as a father. I've known Josh for oh, close to 25 years, and I've always sort of appropriated his ministry more as a peer and, but now, what he's going through, I, I recognize I need to appropriate it as a father. Uh, I have kids of my own that are being impacted by what he is doing. I have a church that is being impacted by what he is doing. And so, how do I respond as a father? And so, what I'm, and whether or not this is a one-time uh, special Daily Thunder event, or if this becomes a little series, I may actually have a few more that I go through on this, but it's called Reminders from Joshua Harris. I actually thought of calling it uh, Precious Reminders from Joshua Harris too long, though. And Sacred Reminders, Sweet Reminders from Joshua Harris. 
because it sounds like the opposite uh, of what we'd be saying right now. And yet that's what I want to say, is that God has reminded me of some things that are very, very precious in the midst of this. And so I call this particular episode the fight of the father. So I'm calling the series Reminders from Joshua Harris, even if this turns out to be the only one. But this particular episode, the fight of the father, I like it. It gets me all excited just to get going on this. So I remember I was uh, driving down the road. Uh, it was dark in the, in the car, and we were on a, a trip through the night, and I was digging into one of those uh, things you buy at a convenience store. Uh, I don't know what it was, chips or uh, something. I, I, don't, I don't know what it would have been, but it has one of those stay fresh packages in it. You guys know what those are, the ones that uh, you're always thinking, boy, I'm glad I didn't eat that. Well, so I'm digging in, and I stick this thing in my mouth, and I'm chewing, and I, it does not taste like everything else I've been chewing on. And for the life of me, I, it's just like, and it was not uh, properly uh, working in my mouth. And then finally, because I couldn't see, I didn't know what it was. And I, finally, I pull it out and I realize I was chewing on a Stay Fresh package. And that's exactly what this whole process has been like. In other words, in the midst of all of our uh, eating, our, our feasting in Christianity, suddenly we got a piece of stay fresh package in our mouth and that's if I could liken it to it that's that's what this Josh Harris thing has been for many of us it's been something that was rather shocking and difficult to digest and probably uh, shouldn't remain in our mouth very long Uh, there are certain spots in the church of Jesus Christ uh, I should just say in life not in just the church of Jesus Christ in life that we could call safe places and God designed them that way and I'm going to go through them real quick we have uh, the safe place. My clicker's suddenly not working, so I don't know if you can uh, move it forward. The safe place of family. You know, when you're in family, you're supposed to be safe. And so family is not supposed to be uh, one of those locations that uh, you're injured in. And yet, for mo- many of us today, it's a, it's a very uh, difficult place. Marriage uh, is supposed to be a safe place, and yet we have maybe a higher divorce rate today than any time in history. Uh, the womb of a woman. That's supposed to be the safest place on earth. And yet, you guys all know uh, that that has actually become one of the most dangerous places on earth. It's called abortion. The church. What an interesting list. These, are, these would be considered the safest places on earth. And yet, we're finding some of the greatest damage taking place in these safe places. You see, my heart goes out to Josh in this situation. My heart goes out to the other people that Josh has felt compelled to travel around and, and to uh, communicate to that he's sorry. He's, he's had this apology tour. My heart goes out to them because there is a lot of aches and pains. There's a lot of wounds and scars in the church of Jesus Christ. And obviously Josh himself has had them to the point where he has forsaken the church. He has forsaken his closest friends. He has forsaken uh, the body of Christ and Christ himself. And so this safe place that is supposed to be there has actually brought about so much harm, and that's it's a deep burden for me. What's happened to our safe places? So I want you just to ponder with me. Fathers are meant to protect safe places. And when fathers are not present in that family, it suddenly loses its safety. When they're not present in that marriage, it loses its safety. They're not present in the way they should be. They're not present in the way that God designed them to be. When they're not present in that uh, pregnancy, when they're not present in the church 
to protect and to preserve and to be caring, to actually consider the needs of the weaker. So in Scripture, it's a really fascinating study if you ever study Ab. It's such a huge study that I think it's a little overwhelming. But the, the Hebrew word Ab uh, is, is a significant one uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's used over 1,200 times, which if you know word usage in Scripture, that is a massive amount. And uh, it's the, this, this concept of ob, some people have said, and I don't know that I could prove this, but that it's the first labial sounds of an in- infant. So when an infant is going back, you know, making those little noises, that actually ob, ob, is the first labial sounds, which is a fascinating statement to think that the first word in the Hebrew language is ob. The first word for a little infant, a newborn, is ob. Isn't that interesting that they, we are created to speak this name of father? It's an extremely fascinating thought. It's the, so it's the first word in the Hebrew language. It's 1,215 usages. It's the first labial sounds of reformation. So if there's going to be change, if there's going to be alteration of culture, it's because father is being spoken again. And that's an interesting statement because I'm going to go into the scripture in Malachi uh, about the fact that when the Messiah comes, he's going to do something very specific. He's going to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And this is the sign of reformation. This is the sign of change. Everything is being made new, like the kingdom of heaven afresh. It's the first word in the awakened and empowered church. So when the church is awakened and empowered, what's it going to speak? Father. The signal of the Messiah is coming. So here it is in Malachi, the very last words of the Old Testament, and then it goes silent for 400 years. So these words would have weighed heavily uh, in the minds of every Jew because they were the last ones spoken and then 400 years of silence. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Boom, silence. So what happens when safe places are no longer safe? So when we go through a season like we are in the church today, where what we see in, in the Joshua Harris situation is a, an evidence that something is off. And I think it's important for us to recognize that we don't just cover over the Josh Harris situation and say, well, you know, that's a, it's a one-off type of circumstance. Actually, I think it's, it's telling of something a lot deeper. The church is very weak right now. And the, even watching how the church is responding to the Joshua Harris situation makes me feel uh, extremely vul- like it's extremely vulnerable. I, I, you know, my blog came out on Friday, and I've been overwhelmed with communications in regards to how much this has disturbed the church, how much the Josh Harris situation has disturbed people, even causing them to wonder if they should question their faith too. If Josh Harris questioned his, should they question theirs? It's interesting, right? I'm not questioning mine, but why is it that it's shaking so many people? So there's an article in Christianity Today, uh, which why Christianity Today felt obligated to publish an article such as this is interesting. But it's basically, I'm going to summarize it in this one statement. The purity movement ruined me. And so it's an interesting thing for Eric Ludy to know how to process, considering I would have been one of the key leaders in this supposed purity movement. And so the purity movement ruined me. And uh, so how do we respond to that? Should we publish articles on this? 
And however, the simple fact that a lot of people will look back and say, yes, something happened in this that has disturbed my life is still important to recognize and to understand. Josh Harris went on an apology tour because of it. And so how is a father to respond to this? So how should we respond as the church? Should we throw out the idea of purity because it was misused, misunderstood, and misapplied? And so what we see is that you know, I didn't follow Joshua Harris around to hear what he was speaking all the time. I presumed certain things, and maybe my presumptions were wrong. Maybe he was preaching legalism. Maybe he was preaching a version of purity that was heavy-handed, that was rules-based, that was formulaic. Maybe. Uh, and if so, what he was giving is he was giving a version of purity, but it was not God's version. It would have been a man-made version. It's like, just do this, do this, do this, do this, and do this. Or as, the, as Paul says, handle not, taste not, touch not. And yet he says, these things do nothing to actually curb your real problem. And so if you give a list of rules, it actually is a false form of purity. And I could understand, get this, I could understand why people would say it ruined me. If that's what they received, I could actually get it. And so the key is for us as Christians... I know the classic term is do not throw babies out with bathwater. But right now, something is being attacked, and that is purity. As if purity is some, something that uh, is, oh, I, you know, can you believe that someone actually preaches purity? I mean, who would have the audacity to do that? I mean, it's, yeah, it's only the stodgy, formulaic religious church that would ever do that. Purity is the nature of God. When we go to heaven, it's going to be pure. And so as a result, what, what do we do with situations like this? What if the article had read, my father ruined me? Should we throw out fathers? And so just because there is a distortion of something does not mean you throw it out. And so what we have is a disturbance in the church, but because we're so vulnerable, we are actually vulnerable to throwing out the nature of God in a circumstance like this. What if the article had read, my marriage destroyed me? Should we throw out marriage? What if the article had read, my church hurt me? By the way, everything I'm reading is the statement of a generation. In other words, should we throw these things out because they have been misunderstood, misapplied? In other words, because something has been done incorrectly does not mean the thing itself is wrong. There are things that are God essentials and God commands us to do them. So I'm going to give a separation of two different types of things man-made things that we have a tendency to bring into our Christianity, and God things that God commands. But that's not man-made. This is a God thing. And so the first thing I want to do is give you at least an introduction to the fact that there are God things or God essentials that God has defined for us that we are supposed to do them. They're not negotiables. Things like fatherhood. For instance, I'm a father. I have six kids. I don't walk out on that. I don't leave that. I have a job description, and it's imperative that I take care of it according to the pattern that God has given me, right? That isn't one of those things where, you know, one day I wake up and go, you know what, I'm tired of this. I, 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 I think, you know, it's too hard for me. I, I do it. How about faithfulness? Faithfulness is something that all of us are called to. God is faithful, 
And then as we believe in him, we are required to actually maintain a constancy in that connectedness. But if I get married, you know that I'm supposed to maintain a constancy in that connectedness. With my kids, I'm supposed to be faithful. Faithfulness is a God attribute. It's not something you throw out. Love, long-suffering, and yes, purity. You see, these are all things that in this Joshua Harris thing are under direct attack. You have a father, you have a husband who is discarding and turning away from God essentials and he's throwing them out. And this is why it's important for us as a church to recognize the difference between man-made and God essentials. You don't throw out God essentials just because they're misused and misapplied. They're God things. They're God assignments. They're things that God desires to train us. And if we get off course, he wants to bring us back to the right. We don't throw it into the trash. So then there are also things that are man-constructed. Now, here's what's interesting. These oftentimes are very good things. Now, there's a lot of bad man-constructed things, but usually we don't fall for the bad man-constructed things. As the church, we fall for the good man-constructed things. And we sometimes confuse these for God essentials. Now, when I go through our list here, you'll recognize what I mean. We confuse them for God essentials. Look at this list. Voting Republican. Now, of course, there's probably some liberal Christians out there like, I've never struggled with that. However, on the conservative side of Christianity, yeah, you're a Christian and you vote Republican. That's just what you do, uh, okay? And it's funny because I'm stirring some people up even just by saying, it's like, well, someone, someone in the audience is like, well, how could you not? That's a different story. In other words, it could be a good thing. It could be a right thing. But Christianity doesn't equate to republicanism. Does that make sense? And when you make it that, now suddenly, what if the Republican Party goes weird? Well, you could throw off your whole Christianity because Christianity and republicanism are the same. They're not the same, okay? Christianity is Christianity. God didn't say in the Bible that you need to vote Republican. At the same time, it does not mean it's wrong. It's just that that isn't where your faith lies. That isn't what you put your spiritual stock in. Look at this next one, homeschooling. Now, boy, I could stir a lot of people up with this list. I'm just saying, it's not Christianity isn't homeschooling. It's just, it could be a wonderful thing. I homeschool my kids, right? And so, what, what do you do with that list? You need to recognize that they're not bad, they're man-constructed ideas. And so, therefore, when we place our stock in these, we can be disturbed when they go south. Look at this next one, eating gluten-free. Uh, I, I put in forth going through Ellerslie training, just it was a little plug, you know, but at the same time, a lot of people could think that they are more spiritual because they go through Ellerslie training, which, by the way, is a great training. These are good things, right? I, I don't particularly care to eat gluten-free, uh, but these are, these are some really good things. However, the fact that they're good does not make them Christianity. God doesn't need these things to build up a saint of God. At the same time, he could use them. They are tools that he can use, but they're not the essentials of Christianity. Look at the final one, because this is what pertains to what we're talking about. And yes, courting instead of dating. You see, what happened in the Josh Harris thing is a man-made construct of relationships overruled purity. Purity is a God essential. Courting, betrothal, all these patterns, these formulas that people have come up with, they may be good, and they can definitely have wisdom to them, but we need to make sure that we know the distinction between man-made and God-essential. So Joshua Harris is helping to remind me of something very, very important. 
The man-made stuff destroys when it overshadows the God essentials. Whenever you overplay and hyperbolize man-made elements of even Christianity, you will find that it actually destroys the faith that you have in God because you're transferring what is supposed to be in God, in Christ Jesus, a simple faith, an abiding childlike faith in that into something that is man-made. And what if that man-made structure begins to fall to pieces? Well, then your entire faith goes to pieces. You guys remember 9-11? I don't know, uh, some of the age uh, of people in here, uh, the answer may need to be no, I don't. But 9-11, what was that? That was in 2001? Is that right? 9-11-2001. Boy, I remember that day. And what was interesting when, those, when the, uh, the World Trade Center, the two, two towers fell, uh, collapsed to the ground, which is such an extreme thing to happen on live television. I mean, so, such a horrifying thing. I just remember just trying to walk through that. I'm, I'm going to liken what we're going through with Joshua Harris to something like that, okay? Now, you, you could get upset with me to say, well, one, we lost you know, thousands of lives and you know, the Joshua Harris, no one's died. This is a spiritual thing. This is like a spiritual 9-11. It's a somewhat, somewhat of a crisis in Christianity. And here's what happened in 9-11. It's amidst the tragedy, there was a turning to family where everyone was calling up every, everyone in their family that they hadn't talked to recently and just saying, I just want you to know that I love you. Because everyone had that sense that life was fragile. And so they begin to cling to the things that mattered most. See, that's what I want to put my finger on. There's things that matter in this time, and when we go through something like that, let's remember these things. Remember, this is reminders from Joshua Harris. He's helping us remember some stuff. Purity is a God essential. It is not a formula. It's not a theology. It's not a five-step program. It's simply something wonderful that happens in your life when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. This isn't something we need to, oh, the purity culture, the purity movement, let's throw it out. No, no, don't throw out Jesus with the bathwater. Yes, there's some junk in Christianity right now. Sure, I'm, I'm not going to argue that. But don't throw out God in the midst of it. So this is the one that's stirring inside of me. But fatherhood is the God essential that the Spirit of God keeps stirring within me as I navigate through this. Because there's part of me, being someone that has written you know, 12 books on the topic of sexuality and purity and relationships, I find myself in the middle of this firestorm, whether I want to be or not. And my response is interesting because there's part of me that just wants to be silent. It's like, hey, this isn't my business. What, what do I have to do with this? And yet as a father, I feel it's essential that I do something. So what if the article had read, this is a review from the previous slide, my father had ruined me. Should we throw out fatherhood because someone misused it, misunderstood it, or misapplied it? So, of course, you know my answer so far is no way. It's a God essential. And that's what's being reminded in me. Fatherhood, I cannot be silent in a situation like this. I have a job to do. I have kids that are being affected by this or will be affected by this. Some are too young to understand fully what's going on. At the same time, I have a 14-year-old boy that I'm currently walking through an understanding of manhood, an understanding of purity, an understanding of what it means to live as a sexual being with honor in this generation, and I have this happening right in front of him. What do I do as a father? There is a lot in this situation that I don't know what to do with, but one thing I do know is I need to handle it as a good father should. What does that mean for me? 
So I'm going to go through a, a list uh, here. I, I don't want to, with Josh, kiss the precious things goodbye. He is going through a crisis in his life, and in so doing, he's questioning everything that is God-essential. That's what he's doing. He's, th- he's, he's throwing out everything God-essential in this time. It's weird he spent the last couple years apologizing to people that he had hurt. And now he's hurting people at a greater degree than he ever did before, and it's all the people that have stood by him and loved him for all these years. It is weird. Okay, how do you do that? How do you spend two years on an apology tour and then create greater wounds uh, as a result of everything? And so how do we walk through this as the church? Well, let's, let's wake up like 9-11 and let's say, okay, I want to start calling my family and cherishing them afresh. I, I don't want to do that to my family. You know how much I've cherished uh, my marriage and my kids over the past couple weeks of this, it's really interesting. It's like, well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for this fresh deepening to say, I want to do this right. I'm not going to take this lightly. So I don't want to kiss precious things goodbye. For instance, like my own father's investment into my life. I look at Josh's, the, the investment of Greg Harris into Josh. It wasn't for this end. It wasn't. His dad has invested so much into his son. I don't want to forsake what my dad invested into me. So I remember my dad sitting down with me. It was one of the most awkward moments of my life in the banana yellow VW bus. I had, I think uh, James Dobson had come out with one of these things, like when your son turns this age, you're supposed to sit down with him as a father, right? So my dad took me out in a banana yellow VW bus, and I was like, Dad, where are we going? He's like, well, we're just driving down the road here. And we go in front of this, like, local strip mall parking lot. Uh, It was, like, really dark, uh, and we, we sat in the parking lot, and we got in the back of the banana yellow VW bus, and my dad's like, yeah, so, <clears throat> and he went on to explain to me that I was a man, uh, and that uh, these weird things were happening inside of my body, and, you know, yada, yada. I'm not going to go into that discussion right now. However, my dad, though he was uncomfortable, did something so noble and so heroic, and you know that that's had a huge impact in my life, and so right now as I train fathers to help their sons, it's interesting how much I cherish and how much I look back. And even though my dad did it imperfectly, sure, he did it. And he was a father. He did the best he knew to do. There was a a story of a guy named Derek Redmond. He was an Olympic athlete. I want to think, I want to say that he was from uh, Great Britain, but I'm not not sure uh, what country he was from. But it was in the, uh, it was like 1992 Olympics. And Barcelona, that's what it was. But uh, he, was, he was running the 400 meters, and he had gone through so many difficulties in his life to even get to that place. He'd had a, a leg injury, and the doctors had said you'd never run again. And he'd overcome all of that, right? And so here he's in the qualifying heats in the Olympic Games. You can just imagine how much has gone into this, what a great story it is. And in the qualifying heats, he's, he's running around the track, right around the 300-meter point, and he pulls his hamstring is what I think it was. And he, he goes down to the track in extreme pain. And this is a guy who has overcome such difficulty to get there, and he, he makes it to the Olympic Games, and then, oh, he's 100 meters from the finish line. And he 
oh, and he, in, he gets injured. And so he's down on the track, kneeling down in pain and in agony. And then he gets up, and he's going to finish this race. It's a really cool video if you've ever seen it. And he's limping towards uh, the finish line, and there's a disturbance in the crowd. And there's this great big man that is pushing people aside. He jumps over the security fence, and he runs out onto the track in the Olympic Games. Okay, this is like high-level security issue. And he comes up to this runner and puts his arm around him. And the runner sticks his head into his dad's chest. It was his dad. His dad sees his son in that situation and literally violates every rule of the Olympic Games. Probably, I don't know what, what happened to him as a result of this. I mean, that's like a prison term, guys. You can't do that. And yet he doesn't care. That's his son, and his son is in need, and his son needs his father. You know, when I saw that, I was crying. And I remember thinking, that's my dad. I was given something very precious. And though we could all examine our, you know, our parentage and that which we have come from and find flaw in it, if we will spend the time to say, but God, what did you give me? And cherish it. It's, it's amazing. The words, I love you. My dad, uh, my dad didn't get those words from his father very much. Uh, and so he had decided he was going to tell me every night, uh, his children every night, that, that he loved him. Then he would kiss us on the, the lips too. And uh, so he did that every single night. And then when I turned around 11, I realized I was in public school. Uh, and I realized that none of my other buddies had dads that did stuff like that. I mean, I'd stayed overnight at their house. Their dads didn't do that. And so one night my dad came in and I pushed him away. And you could just imagine what that would be like for a father. It's like, I'm going to do this better. You know, I'm going to be affectionate with my children. And then the son says, don't do that, dad. That's embarrassing. And so my dad was struggling with this, and now he was sort of bottled up, but didn't know how to do it. And years passed, and he didn't say anything. I knew he loved me. I mean, my dad proved it in a thousand ways. He's a great dad. But he didn't know how to say it. He didn't kiss me anymore, and it was just, you know, just an awkwardness between us. And I remember telling my dad when, I want to say that I was like 19 or 20. It could have even been 22. I, I have this, like, various stories in that time period. And I told him, you know, Daddy, could you tell me that you love me? And it was so awkward for him. And he couldn't speak in that moment. But a few days later, he called me up. I was out in Idaho visiting my grandma. And someone said, Eric, your dad's on the phone. I'm like, really? He took the phone and like, uh, <clears throat> hello? It was Eric. <clears throat> I love you. And I, this was the essence of our conversation. Hello? Eric, I, I love you. <clears throat> Thanks. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah bye. <laughs> that was our conversation. But it was precious. I have received something very precious from my father. Though it be imperfect, my dad has risked. He has gone out of his way to invest in me, and I want to care for that investment. The tearful blessing. I remember he brought me into his, his bedroom. Uh, I was 22 years old and had four chairs set up, and he read something to me that he spent two days writing, and it was words that changed my life. Some of the words, I love you. Will you forgive me for not always being there? Eric, you're a man. I mean, one of the most critical moments in my life, I call it the tearful blessing. It's the first time I ever saw my dad cry in his life was when he was blessing me as a man. The Capel Cabin, that's what, we, that's what I call it. Leslie would know what that is, too, because she was actually there. I remember we were in a prayer time. Our two families were together. This is before we were married. 
And uh, my dad came up behind me, put his hands on my shoulder when I was sitting in a chair, and then prayed out, Lord Jesus, my son is a man. And I still remember it. I mean, I made it up on the screen after all these years. You see, something has been given me, and this 9-11 is causing me to cherish and bring these things to the surface afresh. So when we entered our ministry and we're speaking on purity uh, around the world, it was overwhelming, Leslie and I. We, didn't, we weren't set up for this. We didn't grow up in a ministry family. We didn't know how this worked. And it was so overwhelming, the demand upon us and the time commitments and the time constraints. And I remember my dad calling me up one day and saying, Eric, I'm leaving my job to come serve you. My dad was a high-level business executive, and he literally gives up his career to serve us. I remember uh, we were going through a tremendous crisis, and someone had uh, basically uh, plundered our business. We'd lost everything. We had to sell everything we had. We had to lay off our entire staff, my dad being one of them. And uh, so we, this is our first event to try and get back up on our feet. We, we went through so many trials uh, in the beginnings of our ministry. And uh, we were out in a, it was a huge event. It was a couple thousand person event. It was going to, all the book table sales were going to go to us. And my dad was in charge of the book table. And it was significant in its size and in what it was going to bring in. But it was going to help us get our, us financially back on our feet. And I remember this moment. I was sitting in a, a, a rental vehicle with my dad. And I was in the driver's seat. He was in the passenger seat. And I remember a Wendy sign above his head. I don't know. That's just in my memory. I, I just remember the moment so so deeply, and we were talking, and he, he, he said, wait, Erica, I had someone come up to me before the event that said all the money for the book table was supposed to go to their bookstore, and they said that Eric had requested it. He said, well, if Eric requests it, then of, of course, yes, and so my dad was realizing in that moment, I said, no, it wasn't supposed to go to them. Again, it was, this is associated with that same thing that had plundered us and had taken all our money. This is the same same little con job that is taking place in this situation. And so after all of the difficulty we'd gone through, we were finally getting back on our feet and all our money had been funneled away again. And I'm sitting there in this rental vehicle shaking, trying to swallow it, trying to be a man. And my dad looks over at me with that Wendy sign above his head and says, if you go down, then I'm going down with you. These moments have defined me because I saw something in my dad that has always registered deeply within me. You don't give up on things. You don't turn away when it gets difficult. My dad has given me something and I want to cherish it. I don't want to, with Josh, kiss the precious things goodbye. So the first one is like my own father's investment into my life. The second thing, like the preciousness of my own marriage with Leslie. You know, when I see his marriage fall to pieces, what should it do to me? Should it cause me to question my own marriage and say, hey, you know, well, that's a good idea? No, it should cause me to do the exact opposite. To say, well, I, I'm celebrating my 25th wedding anniversary this year. I want to celebrate it better than I've ever celebrated an anniversary before. I want to do this right. Thank you, Lord, that I have a wonderful marriage. Thank you, Lord, for walking me through all these difficulties and making us stronger because of it. I want to cherish this afresh. I don't want to let the devil get away with anything. And then how about this one? Like the wonder of being a father to six kiddos. I don't want to leave my family. I don't want to, I don't just have six kiddos. I have a church body too. I don't want to forsake these things. A father can't do that. 
And so when you bring back the idea of fatherhood, things begin to come into order. You see, what we have is we have a loss of fatherhood in our generation. As a result, the safe places are no longer safe. So this blog that I released on Friday, and I I think it's like a five-part thing that I'm going to be releasing. Why am I doing this? I'm doing this blog for my kiddos. That might not make sense at first, but I want you to just pause and think for a second. My kids may not be old enough to recognize what is going on right now. I mean, Hudson is. But most of my kids don't understand the battle over truth in a generation. They They don't understand that. But in the years to come, I need them to be able to look back and see that their father did what a good father should do. I need to do what a good father should do. You know how stupid it is to write a blog about this? It is not a wise thing. If I desire just peace, calm in my life, this is not what I should be doing. However, you could take that at every situation in life. Your son goes down on the track and pulls a hamstring in the middle of the Olympic Games. You know what? You could risk everything, but you need to be there. And you have that sense as a father. So what are you going to do? You're going to hop over that security fence. Are you you sure you want to do that? Yes. My children need to know that I'm right there with them, doing what good fathers do. I yearn to have my children have such a testimony of me. So what I did is I, I took this from a list that I compiled years ago of the sort of father I want to be. When my kids look back on my life, say 20, 30 years from now, and someone holds a microphone to them and says, so tell us what it was like growing up with your father. What would they say? That's a scary thing. I still quake at such a notion, but this is what I want them to say. Now, the list, just because it's on a list doesn't mean I'm exhibiting all this to the degree, or that they would say this, okay? This is what I long for, okay? You notice the distinction between those two? I was there. Tell me about your father. He was there. He was always there. He was present in my life. Uh, I met danger with my own chest exposed. So tell me about your father. Well, if there was danger, he would face it. I was patient and long-suffering. I was a listener and a good question asker. I was a teacher imparting everything I knew. I was a champion for Jesus, a living replica of his grace. I was gentle, huggable, kissable, and cuddleable. I wrestled on the floor with my kids and wrestled in the public square for the truth. I preached the gospel, spoke the gospel, taught the gospel, and lived the gospel in every moment. I was a protector from everything hostile to spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical health. I was a rescuer of the weak and advocate for the vulnerable, a father of the fatherless. I was honorable, honest, faithful, and true. I was a noble gentleman unto my wife and, and, and loved her as a woman should be loved. I was always accessible, always approachable, and always wanting my children near. I was thoughtful, warm-hearted, generous, and kind. I was strong when strength was required. I was soft when softness was needed. I was always the last to sleep and the first to rise. I was always on my knees praying. I was a true man, a man of God, a man as God intended me to be. So, you know, as, as we go through this, you may not be a father, and so the, the connectivity in this may not be there exactly one-to-one parallel. But there is something that needs to happen inside of each of us in a time of 9-11, in a time when something is shaking, in a time when everyone feels extra vulnerable, fragile, and weak. Very simply put, fatherhood needs to rise up. But in each of us, it's the spirit of the father. It is the strength, because you may be a woman, 
and yet you need to allow the spirit of the Father to literally rise up and be strong in such a circumstance, in such a situation. We are all called to be as Jesus in this matter, in these issues. And Jesus was a picture of the Father. And so for all of us, this becomes very, very important. So may my children testify this of me, that I refuse to deny the holocausts of my day, that I refuse to step down on the issue of protecting life in the womb, that I refuse to say no when the orphan child needed a home, that I refuse to allow the Down syndrome child to be cast aside and buried inside a government program, that I refuse to ignore the young, girl, young pregnant girl's situation, that I refuse to act as if the sex trafficking industry is a myth, that I refuse to overlook the need of the single mom's plight, that I refuse to do nothing when something needed to be done. Now, that list is a list I came up with a long time ago, and yet just reading it afresh causes me to remember. It's like, am I a father as a father ought to be? It is so easy to subside into a fatherhood that is just one degree better than the fathers out there. It's like I could look at the Josh Harris situation and say, well, at least I'm still married. Well, that's pathetic. As opposed to being inspired afresh to say, yo, I don't want to live on the, on the razor edge of falling to pieces. I want to go way over here into the realm of strength and vibrancy and life and health. I want to be vigorous in my pursuit of the endless frontier of possibility. What could marriage be if I invested in it? What could raising my kids be if I did this right? What could my manhood be if I actually allowed God to cultivate it? Something so far beyond is what I want. I don't want to hang out near the edge of a precarious ledge and cliff. I want to go in a completely opposite direction. I am not inspired by Josh's behavior to follow him. I'm inspired by his behavior to go the opposite direction. So I refuse to do nothing when something needed to be done. I refuse to turn a blind eye to the encroachment of the world upon my children's souls. I refuse to yield to the plea to let my children just be normal. Oh boy, it's so much easier to let your children just be normal. If you just let them be normal, life is just so much more pleasant. And yet, can't do that. Can't do that. I refuse to allow Jesus to have spit upon his cheek. I refuse to allow truth to fall on the streets and judgment to turn away backward. I refuse to allow my boys to grow up without being trained as men. I refuse to allow my girls to grow up without being trained as women. And here for today, I refuse to let Joshua Harris tear down the construct of manhood and marriage without rising up and doing something about it. Why do we do what we do? Standing up for truth is hard in a culture that is increasingly more and more anti-Christian. Because all of us have a very clear social perception of right and wrong. It's weird. No one needs to teach us that something is socially or politically incorrect. You pick up on it. It's a vibe. And you get familiar with the notion that if you do certain things, there is fallout in your reputation, in your range of motion, of influence. If I just keep my mouth shut, then I could do some powerful things in the world. This is, this is how the reasoning goes. I remember, eyes wide open, when I was going to begin to write 
Christian books, books that talked about Jesus. You know what that would mean? I could no longer be a famous novelist that could write, you know, those types of books that everyone loves that are bestsellers because I'm going to be one of those kooky Christians. Once you get into the box of being the kooky Christian, you're sort of in a box. And so unless you hide your faith and just sort of, you know, navigate through this thing called life with a cloak on and just sort of have a secret version of Christianity, you're going to have problems. It's going to come out, isn't it? And so for me, I've decided, now maybe you could call this buck-toothed and backwards, but I've decided I can't hide my light under a bushel, and I'm not seeking to be cool in this generation. It's funny because Jesus says, anyone who is cool gets spit out of his mouth. Remember the church at Laodicea? Of course he said lukewarm, but I interpret that as cool. And so anyone who wants to be cool is messing with danger. And now get this, I sort of desire to be cool, <laughs> I still, when I see a car going down the road, I'm like, that's a, yeah, I'd like to be driving that. <laughs> I would look so much better. I've had, for the past year, because of certain things that have been going on in our life, uh, I've been driving <clears throat> our travel vehicle, which is like a 23-foot-long van. It is not cool. And that has been a very unique thing for me, is, is, is I'm saying this in front of all of you, saying, I don't, I'm not after coolness. And God's like, let's test that. <laughs> That's the way I feel my last year has been. It's okay. You see, I'm open, available to God to be buck-toothed to this world, to have a calic that sticks up, to look funny, to smell funny to the world so that I can do what good fathers do. Good fathers have a job description right now. So remember our word ob? It's that first word in the Hebrew language. It's the first labial sounds of a child, remember that? But it's also the first labial sounds of soul awakening. You know that when you have a new birth, you see, when, when you, your first labial sounds of an infant, ah, bah, 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 first labial sounds of a new birth, what do we say? What is the first thing that our soul cries out when we are born anew and the Holy Spirit enters into us? We say, Abba, 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 Abba. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. We actually, when we are born anew, cry out the name Father. It's the first word in the dictionary of the twice born. So yeah, it's the first word in the Hebrew language. It's the first word in our dictionary as new creatures in Christ Jesus. It's the first labial sounds of real Christianity. It's the first word in the hero's vocabulary. Jesus, and I, I'd like to say exclusively, because I don't know of an exception, but there could be one, exclusively refers to God as Father. Isn't that an amazing statement? What is the key revelation that Jesus wants to give us of God Almighty? He's a Father. And think about what the gospel is. This Father is going to give his only begotten Son. This is family language. That whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a father who gives. It's a father who rescues. It's a father who sees need and goes into that need and meets that need in whatever way is necessary. We have a need. The 
church of Jesus Christ is against the ropes and it's bloodied. I'm using a boxing illustration, so it might not work with you. But that's literally how I feel. It's staggering. And it's leaning against the ropes and it looks like, it looks like it's going down. This is exactly what the cross looked like, too. It looked like all hope was lost. What's happened to our Messiah? He looks like he's going down. This is God's moment. Right there. Right when it looks like we're at our weakest is when God comes in. The devil's gloating. He's looking at the crowd and doing his little dance around while the referee's like, one, two. And yet this is our moment. You do a close-up on the boxer. And blood is trickling down his cheeks. His eyes are swollen over. He probably has a broken nose. But he looks up and you watch his face. You watch his expression. He's determined. He's not going down. He serves the living God. This church of Jesus Christ is not going anywhere. We have been held together throughout the generations. Though we look weak, God loves to take weakness and shine forth his strength. He loves to take what the enemy means for evil and turn it to good. Right now, we have a perpetration, a scheme against the church of Jesus Christ, and it's high time we see it turn. What's needed? Well, fatherhood. We need the fatherhood of God to intersect us. We need the fathers in our midst to rise up and do something to speak, to protect our children. We need truth in a season of lies. So that's what I'm being reminded of. These are, remember, these are precious, sweet reminders from Joshua Harris. Though the enemy is gloating right now, I think God has us right where he wants us. His grace is sufficient. So we take pleasure in infirmities, in persecutions. We take pleasure in this sort of weakness because when we are weak, then we are strong. Remember this. This is just an incredible meditation to finish with. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So remember in the Hebrew... The first word in the Hebrew language is ab, but the most intimate form of that, just like daddy is of dad, it's an intimate form, is abba. And it literally means papa or daddy. And when the spirit of God moves inside of us when we are born again, he introduces us to abba. And when we live with abba inside of us, that's every one of us. You don't have to actually be a father with kids to appropriate this message because the spirit of the son moves in and he recognizes the importance of fatherhood you see god has made this the very crux the very foundation of his nature is the revelation of who he is is he's a father and so let's remember that now that as a good father would do so must we what would a good father do if he sees this circumstance? How would he respond if he sees this? What would he do? Well, I think he would respond. A father's willing to lay down his life that his children can live. He's willing to lay down his reputation. He's willing to get uncomfortable and jump out onto the track and risk it all to come up next to his child. He's willing to awkwardly say the words, I love you, or to go into the back seat of a banana yellow VW bus and even though he doesn't perfectly know how to do it, he'll still impart. You see, I've tasted something in my life, and I know how difficult it is, and I'm a very, very imperfect father. But isn't it beautiful just to realize that in such a time, 
that we can be reminded that God wants to grow us up in this and God wants to inspire us to go after this with even greater gusto than we ever have before. Joshua Harris has freshly reminded me that I want to be a father as God intended me to be. A father that trains my children to go. A father that so loves that I give my six precious children to the harvest fields. There's a lost and dying world out there. And it's not just me loving my kids, it's me loving the world. For God so loved the world, well, I want to so love the world that I would give up my six kids and say, go, you must go, because there is a world that needs safe places again. They need to see family restored. They need to see marriage become secure again. They need to see the womb of women once again preserved and protected. A child, when a child is in a womb, it must be safe, people. And churches, churches once again must be a place of integrity and honor, truth and love. It is unacceptable that it is not. This is the generation we have inherited. This is when we live. This is our watch. We cannot sit by idly and do nothing. What would a good father do? A good father would do something. See, this isn't just for fathers. This is for all of us. It's doing what good fathers would do. Father, Abba, thank you for your model, for your example, which is the kingdom of heaven, which is Jesus Christ. Thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to enable such action in us. Lord, I pray a blessing upon your church that you would stir within it the spirit of the Father, that you would once again cause us to be strong in the safe places. Lord Jesus, I pray for Joshua Harris, and I pray for mercy upon him. I pray that you would be gentle with him and bring him to repentance. Lord Jesus, thank you for how you are using this situation to stir us as the church of Jesus Christ, to remind us of the most important things. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the spirit emboldened and brave. Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellersley campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.